Okay, welcome to another episode of Cinelit. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh and I am joined by my resident experts, Daryl Buxton. How are you doing, Daryl? I'm good, thanks, Adam. Ready to go on this one and hello to everyone listening. Yeah, so we, we, are, we are talking RKO today, RKO Studios, one of the big five Hollywood studios of the golden age of, of Hollywood from the late 20s, 1929 through to the 1957 when they finished. They were making some of the best movies cinema's ever seen. Yeah, so Radio Keith Orthium is the actual stands for. It's slightly disappointing when you find out what he stands for, RKO. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as impactful as I was, I was hoping. But yeah, they began in 1929 making movies with two musicals. The thing with that, Adam, was that um, RCA actually approached a company called Keith Albee Orthium, who owned a chain of cinemas. And there was a guy called Joseph Kennedy who'd got his own studio as well. And RCA, this is around the time that sound is is being developed for for the incoming talking pictures. So um, RCA wanted a film studio of their own or a little offshoot to basically to sort of advertise their sound equipment. So they put the Kennedy FBO studio together with Keith Albee Orpheum and they created the Radio Keith Orpheum Company. And it was basically designed as the first sound motion picture studio, whereas all the other guys were sort of uh, doing the singing in the rain thing and sort of wondering, you know, what on earth do we do with these microphones? Here was a studio that was set up for it. So uh, that's how it all sort of kicked off. Yeah, absolutely. And what better way to advertise that you are a sound studio than with musicals so exactly um, yeah yeah right in the boom of like musicals 1929 1930 there was there was 30 or 40 musicals being made per year in those days but they 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 kicked off they had a big hit their first big hit with Rio Rita notable for being filmed in uh, Two Color Technicolor for the finale so way back in 1929 sound color everything they would expect from a modern movie there it was um RKO they were making movies in those late 20s, early 30s. One of the things I found, I found interesting when I was doing a bit of research with this, I just assumed musicals were popular from the get-go through to the 1950s when they started to peter out. But in 1931, there was a, 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 a probably boom and bust period in musicals. And by 29 and 30, it was like, I say, 30 and 40 musicals being made a year. And it's like something like 12 made in 31. Appetite for it dropped suddenly which put them in a bit of a, a pickle. And they were struggling, struggling to find a, a, a hit movie in 1931. And uh, we've talked about this previously on other podcasts, about how Hollywood back in the day were not averse to hiring very young people, relatively young people, to be in charge of their, their studios. And RKO made the decision in 1931 to hire David O. Selznick as a production chief at the age 29 years old. 29, Daryl. Half my age, just about, yeah. So, yeah, so it's so, a uh, massive, and, and he was. He only spent 15 months there, but and a massively impactful 15 months he made there. He hired George Cooker as, as one of his, one of the RKO directors. He hired Marion C. Cooper um, as a director who would also go on to succeed him as production chief. He signed Catherine Hepburn to a contract, and he also screen tested a young dancer called Fred Astaire. So quite an impactful 15 months uh, on, on the history of cinema there. Yeah, definitely. During that, we come, we come to our, the first huge success for RKO, uh, huge in more ways than one. Uh, we're talking 1933. We're talking uh, a little-known actor called King Kong. Who, yeah, yeah. He emerged onto cinema screens there with a massive worldwide hit for RKO. You know, the studio had been going for sort of four four years or so then, and Kong had been in development for a while. A pioneering production in many ways, pioneering in its use of stop motion, pioneering in, in, in its scope as well. I mean, the idea of doing this kind of film in 1931, 32, 33, during the development of it, was pretty much unheard of in that period. Yeah, Absolutely. This was something where they were sort of pouring resources into it. And while Kong was in development, they actually decided to make a whole other movie, The Most Dangerous Game, on the sets that they constructed. And it was almost done as 
a practice run. It was made as a sort of commercial movie in its own right, but it also gave the Kong team a chance to just check sort of camera setups and angles and check that all the, the sort of island settings and everything looked okay. So this is how big this film was for them. I mean, one of the things that occurred to me as I was watching it again this week was it, it was very much a pre-code movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pre-Haze Code, because some of the fight sequences between Kong and some of the various creatures are pretty brutal, even by today's standards. You've got the combination there of brilliant animation by Willis O'Brien, and he's actually making it look so real that we're, we're affected by the, the brutality of the fight scenes. I mean, the, the, the famous one, I guess, is, is where Kong fights the, 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 the big T-Rex, you know, and, the, yeah. and actually sort of rips its jaw off and, and sort of rocks it back and forward as though it's on a hinge. Yeah, that's particularly the scene that stood out for me as being yeah, particularly yeah. brutal. I remember thinking, yeah. oof, oof. Added to that, of course, we've got the whole sort of sexuality thing as well and, uh, you know, uh, Fay Ray's clothes being removed and uh, sort of running around in skimpy outfits and so on very definitely a pre-code movie and and one of the best known ones I think you know perhaps the film from the pre-code era that that sort of pushes the boundaries of the code that people know best. Yeah definitely I mean it holds up remarkably well for a movie that's like you know over nearly 90 years old now. Well, it's, it's just a great story, you know, and this is the thing about a lot of RKO's product is they were very, very good at just telling the story, you know, and the, anything else that came, any any sort of technical skill um, or great acting performances or great direction or great camera work, they were there to enhance the great storytelling. And this is evident in Kong because it is just a brilliant adventure story. Of course, at the start of the film, it also ties in with the contemporary scene because it's very much rooted in the Great Depression. Uh, the character of Anne Darrow, Dan Darrow, played by Faye Ray, is a sort of down and out. She, she's, she's down on a look. She's having to steal fruit. And then she gets a big break, which turns out maybe not to be a big break. Uh, but what a, what a story. Yeah, she gets to see all kinds of things. The top of the Empire State Building. She gets, <laughs> she gets to see all kinds of uh, sites. <laughs> I guess it's one of, those, one of those films where its reach has gone way beyond the actual film. And people know that movie, whether they've seen it or not. They know Hong swatting at airplanes on top of Empire State Building. It's become an iconic piece of cinema history. Yeah, definitely. And it's parodied so often. And of course, it's been remade recently. And, um, you know, in, in modern cinema, we've now got this whole new series of uh, sort of Kong and, and Godzilla films. So mm. the iconography of the film is something that people know well. And I guess that comes from things like use of the Empire State Building and use of big, bold images like the gates that open on Skull Island and things like that. You know, it's all stuff that's easy to parody or easy to mimic. It's something that really, really has sort of stuck in the consciousness of the cinema audience over that, as you say, almost 90 years choosing those iconic moments in in the in the film and how the visuals have stood up for years is just a testament to how well it's directed yeah anyone who wants to sort of pick flaws in kong will will say something like oh the the ape seems to change size from scene to scene or you can you can see the ripples of of uh, willis o'brien's fingers on its fur as, as as he sort of animates it you know now you can snipe at that and you can say isn't that terrible you know couldn't they have, have done that better well a i don't think they could have done it better at the time and b those things have almost been co-opted into the story you know the, the fact that kong may change size from scene to scene is almost as though you're seeing him through different points of view and different people have got a different attitude to just how big he is, you know. And you can sort of take that and it, that really does sort of feed into the film. And then this whole sort of ripple effect on his fur, you know, you can say, oh, that's a mistake by the animator. Unavoidable, really. The process of animation is very tactile, you know, and, and if, if you've got these, these sort of hairs and, and this sort of furry covering on the uh, on the armature, uh, O'Brien couldn't help but but sort of touch the model, and I think the outcome 
is delightful. You know, you can almost read it as, oh, it's, it's the wind blowing through Kong's fur or something, you know, and it really adds to his character. Even the mistakes, even the flaws add to the, the spectacular mythology, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, and, and also adds to the charm of it. I mean, it's, you, you don't judge movies that were made 90 years ago by the same standards that you would judge a brand new movie. You, you sure. just don't. And you shouldn't, really. It's not. It's just not fair. And for me, watching that, I get more enjoyment of watching that than I do get of watching the the remake of Kong, for instance, the Peter Jackson yeah. remake of where it's all digitized. It's not. I get much more enjoyment from watching the original and even the seventies version to some extent yeah. <laughs> um, than I do get than watching the, the the completely digitalized versions. Yeah, I think I think the the recent attempt at Kong post-Jackson, the, 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 the Skull Island movie uh, from a couple of years ago, is, is the one that, that sort of comes close to attaining that same sense of adventure and that same sense of fun uh, and give you, give you something of the feel that audiences must have experienced on seeing Kong originally in the 30s. Uh, yeah, so, absolutely. you know, it's proof that it can still be done. But I know what you mean. Yeah. So a huge hit for RKO. Let's move on to their next. Obviously, they were still in the musicals game. Um, they were still in the, in the game of making stars. And they moved on to um, a duo of stars. Fred and Ginger. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers uh, became their staple of, of RKO musicals from the 1930s. They made eight films during that period in the 30s. Eight? Uh, nine, nine altogether, I think. Adam. Nine altogether, but I think it was yeah, eight, eight, eight in the 30s and early 40s. And then they came yes, back in yeah. the late, in the 50s, didn't they? Did another one. Yes, that's right. Yeah. 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 So, so that, that, during that period, you know, you didn't have to wait long for another Fred and Ginger movie, you know. Um, but I guess the one we're going to talk about today is Top Hat. Yeah, which is probably the best of the nine, I think. It was certainly the most successful uh, uh, box office wise for them, for RKO. Um, and it probably highlights their character's the best in that movie. I, I've seen this film, film twice before. I'm not a fan, Daryl. There you go. I'm going to put it out there. I'm not a fan of Fred Astaire. Why not? I just don't like him. I just don't feel like he's the guy. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Gene Kelly guy. You know, when it comes down to, down to musicals and dancers... I like Gene Kelly. Gene Kelly's one of my favourite in, in, in the whole musical spirit. And I think the way he dances is quite physical and quite uh, impactful. Whereas Fred Astaire, he's as light as a feather. He's, he's very dancery, I guess. Um, and it's not quite up my street. There you go. I'm going to put it out there. <laughs> Controversial, possibly. It is. Yes, it is. I think the thing with Fred Astaire is um, you, you have to sort of see him as, in terms of influence, you know, it, OK, you know, again, these, these films are sort of 85 years old now. And uh, so we're watching a dancer from, from that long ago. And since then, of course, you know, we, we've, we've had Gene Kelly, we've had Cagney, as we mentioned the other week. We've had people like Christopher Walken. Uh, Michael Jackson even, you know, um, sort of coming through and um, and redefining what dance on film is. None of these guys would have done that without Fred Astaire. And I think that's that's what you sort of have to look at and have to consider. I mean, I, I don't think the routines have dated necessarily, but as you say, Gene Kelly comes along and he sort of takes things a step further and it's all very muscular and energetic, whereas Fred Astaire is a lot more... Of, of his time, you know, and, and uh, but I mean, I'm 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 still mightily impressed with with what I see there. Maybe I, I agree with you. Maybe not so much in in the sort of the the, the sweeping romantic sort of uh, dances that he does when when he's sort of working with Ginger or working with a partner. But um, I, I, I think his tap stuff is as exhilarating as it ever was and has probably never been beaten. I mean, there's there's one scene in Top Hat where we mentioned talking about Scarface the other week, the great shot of the, the calendar flipping dates over as the sound of a Tommy gun comes on the soundtrack. And interestingly, in, in Top Hat, there's almost an equivalent scene where uh, Fred's doing a routine on stage and he, he does this extraordinary sort of rattle of, of, of tap dancing 
while pretending to mow down the chorus with, with a, a, a cane, you know, that he's turned into a, a, a sort of makeshift gun. And uh, it's an incredible moment. Watching the film again a couple of days ago, I, I did actually sort of exclaim out loud at that. You know, I, I just went, wow. Yeah. There are sort of great pleasures, I think, to be found in a snare. But, yeah, I, I take your point. I, I think other people have sort of built on what the, the foundations that he laid down. Yeah, but, but that's not to say I didn't enjoy Top Hat immensely as I watched it again um, yesterday. And, and that sequence, as you just described, with the with the cane and the the the, mo- the mocking of the Tommy gun sort of thing, was was a remarkable sequence. And I guess in 1935, that kind of the Tommy gun in cinema was prevalent suddenly, and it, that, it was a very topical, very on cultural reference, I guess, is what, is what we call it t- t- today, you know. Yeah, he, he'd been listening to our last podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, that's not just the only iconic thing about this movie. Uh, I guess the Cheek to Cheek song uh, has gone on to be one of the most iconic songs in, in history, I guess. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd say I'd say about the songs in the movie, Any anyone who's listening to this and thinking, oh, should I watch Top Hat or not? You know, Adam hates Fred Astaire, you know, Daryl's a bit sort of lukewarm about him. Anyone who's thinking of, you know, should I watch this or not? Switch it on, sit down, watch it. One thing I guarantee, you'll know every single song in the movie. Yeah, they're all, they've all seeps their way into uh, Hollywood lore, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. We're talking about Fred Astaire as if he didn't have a dance partner there. <laughs> because one of, the, one, of the, one of the famous quotes about uh, Ginger Rogers is that, yeah, Fred Astaire was great, but Ginger did everything Fred did, but backwards and in heels. So <laughs> you know. That's true. When you watch the films, it's true. She does. Yeah. It's a great line, and it happens. It's happening before your eyes. They they make a great team, and you you can tell that Fred is 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 the sort of boss and and the the better dancer. But just to to keep up with him, you you have to be spectacularly talented yourself. And Ginger is, you know, she brings great charm to the role as well. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. There's, there's something about her screen presence that is is very different to what Fred Fred Astaire brings to the table. She's very much charismatic, purposeful. She has a presence about her on screen. Yeah, whereas he's almost sort of an, an everyman type character, you know, although he's got these great dance skills and, and in Top Hat and in one or two of the other films, he's, he's playing a character who's sort of moving on the fringes of high society. But a, a lot of the persona is, is aimed at the guys in the audience saying, if, if you could dance, you could be me, you know. Uh, all, I, all I've got is my tap shoes, and, and other than that, I'm just like you. you know? Whereas Ginger Rogers is, is a little more, not aloof, but a little more sophisticated, I think, and, uh, and it works for her character, and I think it works for the era that, that she's in. You know, it's, it's great for the audience to have a sort of glamorous character, someone who's aspiring, someone who's who's sort of searching for the best things in life. And they make they make a great pair because they're the same in many ways and but there's that little bit of contrast to them as well, you know. And and I think that comes over in the story where it's almost like the characters that Fred Astaire's playing almost sort of punching above their weight, you know, to 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 get with this girl. Yeah, d- definitely. <laughs> <laughs> he's not he's not the most handsome of most. I mean, I mean, when David O. Selznick screen tested Fred Astaire, he says he's not very handsome. <laughs> he's got ears that stick out, but there's some sort of weird charisma about the guy, and yeah, that's, yeah. that's like, that's why he recommended him to be signed to, to RKO. And he's he's right. He's absolutely bang on with that because he's not the most handsome. You can see why his face was parodied in cartoons so much. He's very easily caricatured, you know. He's not massively unlike Stan Laurel in, in looks, you know, and the, and the way he holds himself. There's a couple of moments in the film where I really thought he's channeling Stan Laurel there. Yeah. There's definitely yeah. You know, the bits where he's a bit, what's going on? I don't understand the situation. It's like straight out of Stan Laurel's playbook. Having said that, I, I think I think he also approaches near Marx Brothers levels within Top Hat. Wow! Because it's 
in the early days of the screwball comedy starting to be developed, and the screwball comedy, which we're going to talk about later on, is, is something that I suppose arises a little bit out of the Hollywood musical, because the Hollywood musical was starting to turn a bit more comedic by this point, just to give the, the characters and the audience and the, and the filmmakers something else to do other than... Uh, focus on the dance scenes, you know. So, uh, and, and in Top Hat, I think, um, take the dance stuff out of it and you've still got a, 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 the makings of a really good sort of proto-screwball movie, you know. And Fred really throws himself into that and he, 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 can, he can deliver the sort of fast-talking dialogue, those, those sort of Marx Brothers-type quips and reactions and things. So, yeah, I think he's, um, as, as, as a comic, he is quite gifted, you know, and as you, as you say, he's got the face for it. So, yeah. I mean, it does have that one foot in the musicals, one foot in the screwball comedies camp. It's, I don't think it's quite, it's not quite screwy enough to be a screwball comedy. No, because, you know, it's, it's on the road to developing screwball, yeah. really, at this point. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. It's definitely got that Hollywood, um, the, the stage farce kind of thing. Um, mistaken identity, battle of the sexes yeah. thing going on in it. But that's one of the things that I, I found frustrating about it. As I was watching it now, obviously it's it's years and years and years and years and years later. But the plot line with the, the mistaken identity was just frustrated the hell out of me. I'm like, for God's sake, come on. You know, it's like <laughs> they're all making these stupid mistakes because of mistaken circumstances. And they're just yeah, so yeah. easy to, to 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 not be mistaken. It's really frustrating. Uh, um, yeah, there's there are instances where if a character happened to walk in one room instead of another, you know, the, the whole the whole plot would fall down. And there's a lot of stuff like that in the movie. But I I sort of go with that in 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 their, their fantasies, you know. And uh, and I think I'd, I'd say two things about that. One is that the supporting cast are so good that they sort of prop up any weakness in the material. I and mean, you've you've got people like Helen Broderick playing the the wife of Edward Everett. Horton. Yeah, she's great. And, yeah, they're both fantastic, but she she sort of steals the show in terms of very cynical asides to the audience sort of thing and that very cynical sort of style of comedy. And then you've got Eric Bloor playing the butler who <laughs> hates being a butler and keep, makes us aware of the fact that he hates it and sort of looks down on everyone, but then gets involved in sort of physical comedy as well. You know, he sort of falls in the water and so on. And then the second thing that I'd say about the plot is, yeah, it, it may, by 1935, it may be a bit hackneyed even then, you know, but... You've got the setup where where um, we're thinking, are oh, Fred and Ginger getting together? You know what's going to happen here? And then she goes off and marries somebody else, and and you're left thinking for the last twenty minutes of the film, how's this going to play out now? And <laughs> we'll we'll leave you to watch it and find out. Well, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a, how are they going to get out of this one? Yeah, more, yeah, more, yeah. I, I, and I'm not sure that it was entirely satisfying how they got out of it. But, <laughs> well, I, you know, I went with it. They I got out of it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we won't tell you how. We'll let you see the movie. Yes, you the one, the one, one other thing to say about Top Hat is about the, it's, it's the first half of it set in London, which is basically a few quickly grabbed stock shots, a lot of back projection, and then Hollywood... Hotel room sets on Hollywood sound stages. You know, the second half of the film is set in. Well, they they describe it as Italy in the script, and what you get is uh, one of these what they called in Hollywood in the thirties the big white sets, which were the the massive sort of dance sets that you'd started seeing in Barclay films in the early thirties. Yeah, and then everybody making a musical was doing these incredible sort of Art Deco designs for the for the uh, the dancers to perform on. And here we get what they describe as Italy in the script, and it's basically Venice on a Hollywood soundstage, except it it looks almost better than Venice. It's like this incredible Art Deco fantasy Venice that has to be seen to be believed. I mean, that, I mean that's, that's. I mean, we're, we're poking fun and poking uh, faults at the plot and then and, and some of the some of the characterization. But that's not why you're watching Top Cat. Top Hat. You know, it's no. you're watching it for the amazing dance sequences, the amazing sets, and and, and just the, the choreography and all that kind of stuff that. You get in really, really great musicals, and and this one has it definitely. 
Cool. And obviously, that we've talked about a little bit of screwball comedy, that moves us on to our third film in this sort of like little jaunt through RKO. And uh, we move into screwball comedies, which um, potentially reach one of their zeniths in um, the next movie we're going to talk about, Bringing Up Baby, 1938, uh, Howard Hawks' uh, screwball comedy, described uh, at the time as a reviewer's the screwiest of all screwball comedies. Yeah, well, we've got Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant teamed up here, and they were they were two stars that had really been made by RKO. You know, they were sort of loaned out to all the studios occasionally, as happened under the, the contract system. But they were they were sort of RKO born and bred, you know, and uh, and pitting them together in in this movie. You know, they they make a great comedy team. You know, they really play off each other very well. Yeah, it was the second time that they've been paired together. They did a film called Sylvia Scarlet, didn't they? Yes. Previously, yeah. and but this was the the, the this was the the first one. Um, I find I find it absolutely fascinating this this period. I think Catherine Hepburn's a really really fascinating woman, particularly in Hollywood at that period, particularly at the lengths that she went to to improve her career and and protect her career. During this period, yeah. yeah, she's she's almost unique in in she, mm. she you know she's one of those actors who uh, who sort of developed their own persona and 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 stuck with it, you know, and uh, you know she's not a conventional glamour girl sort of thing, you know, and she's not a conventional comedian as such, you know, she could play dramatic roles equally well. She's sort of somewhere in the middle. She's found her own little niche. You know, she's Catherine Hepburn, and, and yeah. uh, not many actors or actresses. Are, are capable of actually finding exactly what she found there and sort of creating this very, very individual persona, which audiences obviously then got to know and love. And so they'd come along and see her films, sort of knowing what they were going to get, but knowing that it was going to be high quality. Mm. Uh, another interesting thing I, I didn't realise at the time was that Bring a Baby was a flop. Yes, it was, yeah, yeah. And yeah. The reason it was a flop is was was laying squarely at the feet of Catherine Hepburn because you yeah. know Cary Grant was a huge star, he'd done loads of hits. Catherine Hepburn, uh, after an initial early start to her career in the nineteen thirties, early thirties, she won an Oscar for a third film, Morning Glory. She won uh, the, the Best Actress Oscar, and then since that win, her career had been sliding down and down over a string of flops got to the point where the theatre owners of America described her as box office poison. <laughs> Catherine Hepburn as box office poison. And one of the main reasons they did was because this film flopped, Binging Your Baby, which, in which she's, she's brilliant in it. And, yeah. uh, and it's, it's, it's gone on to become rightfully lauded as one of the greatest films in screwball comedies, but one of the greatest comedies of all time. And the fact that it flopped so hard, so hard that she had to basically buy her own contract out of RKO and resurrect her own career outside of the studio system uh, with the Philadelphia story where she bought, the, she got the rights for that. She developed the project, sold it to MGM under the proviso that she could get the top line cast that she wanted. And that resurrected her career and won James Stewart's first and only Oscar. For all that to happen through her at that time, when many other Hollywood actresses wouldn't have taken those steps to protect her career, to improve her standing. Um, it's a really unique situation. It really um, speaks to her historically really well. Yeah, you do get the impression that she knew how good she was and, and damn the critics, you know, yeah. and that... And that you know, okay. If I've had a string of flops, I know I'm great. You know, and with with and and I think I think she would have thought that without any sort of boastfulness or any sense of self-importance, I think she she was great and and she recognised that and and maybe she also recognised that she was a little bit ahead of her time and and that uh, yeah okay I've had this string of flop movies bringing up babies a great film and even even that can't sell tickets you know so what do I do and she's sort of withdrawn planned out her future and then gone for it and you know we we know we know the results so uh, and well, she's yes. now she's now a Hollywood legend so absolutely yeah and, and had a long long career four Academy Awards you know 12 nominations she was uh, yeah a staple of Hollywood 
Yeah, and and yet that could all easily have not happened, you know, and it didn't happen for so many people. So, uh, and as I say, it's not a case of sort of self-importance in her case, I don't think. It is simply a sense of, I know I've got something that I can I can bring to audiences. I know I can get people to like what I do. And again, I, th- I think there's a, a, a sort of modernity to her comedy and, and her approach to acting. You know, yeah, it was maybe she was just a little bit too too ahead of her time in in the 30s. And it took audiences and even the studios and even the filmmakers that little length of time to just catch up with what she was doing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, and and bringing up baby though, let's move back to the to the movie Howard Hawks. He'd uh, already defined the gangster film with Scarface in 1932, and here he is defining the the screwball comedy with bringing up baby. And obviously, he would go on to make one of my favourite films of all time, His Girl Friday, um, another screwball comedy. Um, yeah. A few years later, with with Cary Grant. But yeah, bringing up baby, what a great film. Oh, it is. Yeah. I mean, Hawks is a director that, um, you know, he worked through till 1970 and um, he he is known as a Western specialist primarily. But um, but he's, he's one of those directors who could turn his hand to anything and he'd do it all really, really well. You know, he could make a film in any genre or of any style and you knew it was going to be quality. And here he's, he's sort of tackling screwball comedy and Hawks is known, you know, in thrillers, in, in Westerns in noir, in whatever he turned his hand to, he he became known as a master of um, fast-talking and overlapping dialogue. Um, And you get that in spades here, you know. It's uh, the the, the movie, just uh, particularly in its early stages, um, just moves at lightning pace. There's a whole sequence towards the start of the film on a golf course with running gags, visual gags, um, interplay between Grant and Hepburn, interplay between Grant and other characters, and it takes no watching whatsoever. You just sit back and let it just roll over you. It's fantastic. Mm. Cary Grant on uh, on bumbling professor mode. Yes, he movie. is, which he, um, which he could do very well. Yeah, he could yeah. do very very well. Yeah, and and, he, and a, a great little pairing between the two. The obviously the modernity of, of Catherine Hepburn, as we've been talking about, clashing with. The, the sort of like bumbling professor role. Yeah, he was well, they're, they're, sim- they're symbolised, of course, by the fact that Grant's main obsession is the gigantic dinosaur skeleton that he's working <laughs> on in the museum. And Catherine Hepburn's animal symbol is a leopard. Yeah. So, you know, that tells you all you need to know about their characters. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a wonderful bit in the movie. The, the, there isn't much music in the film, uh, surprisingly. You, th- you think you, you sort of remember more music than there actually is. And the reason for that is they focus on one particular song, which sort of resurfaces through the, the film, which is um, Jimmy McHugh and uh, Dorothy Fields' uh, classic um, I can't give you anything but love. And there's there's a my my favorite point in the film is during the the, the famous, famous scene where Grant and Hepburn actually duet on that song. And it's not like Top Hat where everything stops for a song. It arises naturally <laughs> out of out of the scene. It's just they're singing because it's what these characters would do. It's not like a musical where everyone stops and bursts into song. They're singing because it's what they would actually do at that time. And the, the moment within that that I absolutely love is um that Catherine sings the, she sings the conventional melody of the song and she sings the lyrics and she sings it to the regular tune, the uh, the Jimmy McHugh tune, you know. And Cary Grant, alongside that, does this monotonous counterpoint. He sings it all one note, but it beautifully does does sort of intertwine with, with, with what she's doing. And for, for me, it, that almost sort of defines in a few seconds, what Cary Grant was as an actor or what a particular, one of his particular acting personas was, which is he's, he sort of stayed and uncool on one hand and he's hip on the other and he can sort of do all of that at the same time, you know. The point I wanted to make was as I was watching this, we were talking about Cary Grant and his his, his, his dual persona in movies and that he could play the nerd, he could play the, the professory type character, but he could play the dynamic, handsome, hip lead as well. Yeah, the very sort of suave character, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm watching this movie and he's like, he's playing the bumbling professor. 
then occasionally he just turns to the camera and he looks like Superman. <laughs> you know, he's, like, he's got the quiff, he's got the quill. It's like, my God, he's Superman. And it's, it's that kind of dynamic. He's playing Clark Kent in this movie. But Superman yeah. can't help yeah. but come through uh, in, in, his, in, in his looks and his image. This movie's got everything. They just throw everything in this movie. It's got escape leopards, it's got golf courses, it's got crashed cars, it's got stolen cars, it's got policemen, it's got hunters and explorers. It's got all manner of crazy. It's got an escape leopard from the zoo. It's it's literally they throw everything into this movie. As I've said, you you know you get you get Catherine sort of wearing very manly clothes, and you get Cary Grant in a dress at one point. So uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, literally everything. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant film. You know, you, you you look at films by people like the Coen Brothers today, and and you you can see when you see a film like Bringing Up Baby, you see where a particular strand of 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 what they do originates from. You know, this really does have that sort of feel. You can imagine them making a film like this with George Clooney in it. You know, and uh, uh, and it would play in a, in a very similar way. So yeah, Bringing Up Baby, I think, has definitely got appeal to to today's audience. Um, you know, if, if if you if if you're going along to see Coen Brothers stuff like Hail Caesar and so on, you know, um, you you can watch this, and I think you, it it doesn't look at all dated. You know, I think the thing about screwball movies is that the pace of the dialogue and the pace of the action is is something that uh, has has never gone out of fashion. You know, it it doesn't creak along like like some movies of its vintage. No, I mean it's, it's funny. I was I was reading up on it and on the screwball comedies in general, and just like remarkable how similar they are to, to film noirs. <laughs> yeah, in, in yeah. a bizarre way, it's like they're, they're like film noir movies uh, without the, the crime. They, you have your sort of femme fatale character. You have your your guy in over his head sort of thing. Yeah, very much, very much. Yeah. So I thought it was quite a fascinating one. And and the snappy, the snappy dialogue as well, and the the cynicism, and yeah, yeah. Just a great, nice little, nice little uh, um, way of depicting women in in those movies. Those movies and film noir movies. These are women with agendas. (laughs) They they definitely they are they are the ones in control in those movies. Um, And this, yeah, and they're 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 out for something, and they're they're going to get what they want. Yeah, yeah. Hey, so um, I, I, let's move on. Let's move on to uh, arguably the creative height of RKO. Now we're going to move on to Citizen Kane, Arson Wells' debut film. Little-known actor Arson Wells. Do we need to talk too long about Citizen Kane? It's a legendary movie, regularly voted as the greatest film of all time. There's always stuff to say about Kane. Um, yeah, I, the first thing I'd say is I'd advise people to to, to watch it. You know, uh, it's available on BBC Player, as are all the films we're talking about uh, today. Um, just if you've never, especially if you've never ever seen it before, go and watch it. The first thing to say about Kane is that. Um, Okay, yeah, we we all know Orson Welles now, and people knew him then. But he was he, he was only twenty five when he made this film, and he'd been involved in radio since his early twenties with the the Mercury Theatre on radio, and um, I think he was already seen as quite a difficult sort of character. And I think we talk about RKO being one of the big five Hollywood studios, but I I think they were always seen a little bit by the others because they'd come along sort of late and they'd come along in the sound era. They were seen as a little bit of an interloper. They were seen as a studio that did things differently, you know. And one thing they did differently was to take a chance on Orson Welles, was to say, look, we've, we've heard your radio stuff. We think you're great. Let's see what you can do with a movie. And and basically left him alone and, and said, yeah, we, we want to see what you bring to cinema, you know, and what he bought was so much, maybe not innovation, but something new in in the way that he'd sort of studied cinema of the 20s and, and early 30s and picked out all the bits that he liked about it. And then Citizen Kane is like a melange of, of all of the great things he'd seen some some critics have, have had a dig at the movie over the years. There there's always somebody out there who wants to have a go and knock it off its off its perch, you know. And critics have, have sort of said, oh, you know, they always claim that it reinvents cinema and it is the great innovative movie. Well, what it's doing is is it's taking uh, Ziga Vertov's uh, montage techniques 
and it's it's taking ideas of using using sort of deep focus in the camera work. And people have pointed out that the idea that uh, you you have a shot with one cat one character um, looming large in the foreground and another another way in the distance was actually being done in Lumiere films in the 1890s. You know, okay, all of that's true, but what hadn't been done before is for an artist to come along and put all of that together, and as one French critic said to make meaning out of it, to do all these things, but to actually make them mean something in terms of propelling the story along and, and in finding meaning within that story. I, I suppose it's a case a little bit like the, the equally divisive career of Tarantino more recently, where he's known for sort of pulling bits of his own favourite movies out and actually almost remaking scenes from his own favourite films in his case, rather than just copying the techniques, you know. But the end result is how he puts all that together and how that then creates something new. And here's Wells doing that in 1941. And I think it's fair to say that the point that the, the fans and defenders of Citizen Kane make is true. It reinvented the cinema. I mean, it's it's obviously it's gone on to be the greatest. Well, it wasn't a big commercial success at the time. No, which probably led to RK having more more a say in Wells's next movie, The Magnificent Ambersons, mm. and and the and the fur hero and the, the, the problems that had. But Citizen Kane for me feels like you're right. It brings in all those various different disparate elements into one movie. But it's an incredibly well-told film. Like we yes. talked about earlier on, RKO told great movies, and they it's about a story, movie. yeah, yeah. And it's ripped from the headlines. It's 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 a movie about Randolph Hearst. You yeah. know, it's like you, people knew who he was, and it, it had all those elements and brought together a genuine piece of art, um, which yeah. Yeah. maybe those different techniques on in isolation hadn't quite worked as well as they do in this movie. I, I agree. It's good that you bring up the, the whole thing about William Randolph Hearst, because that was a massive thing at the time the film came out. And Hearst himself, who was a sort of media mogul, very similar to the character of Kane in the film, you know, big sort of newspaper magnet. And uh, and he actually decided himself that, oh, this, this is about me. This is having a dig at me. And he tried to suppress the film. Now, what's interesting about that is we watch Citizen Kane today, and a lot of people watching it today won't even have heard of William Randolph Hearst. And yet the film still works because we have heard of people like Rupert Murdoch, Tony Blair, you know, the, the Kane character is fascinating because you can't get a handle on his politics. At some points in the film, he seems to support communist causes. He goes that far. He goes that far left. You know, most most Americans wouldn't. And here's a guy in a position of power who's supporting communists. And yet, on the other side, he'll he'll occasionally uh, be mixing again with high society and doing what they want and sort of doing their bidding and, and being part of that and trying to sort of forge a path for himself in in big business and in politics, you know. And, and uh, he buys this little newspaper and it becomes the most successful um, in, in the country. And um, so, so I think you don't necessarily just have to think about William Randolph Hearst. I think it's a story that has still got resonance today. And I think this, this idea that you can't get a handle on his politics, and in particular, that he, he sort of pitches himself as a populist, but then dares to show in the film, there's actually a very quick shot in the film of protesters burning effigies and, and banners with his name on, you know. So he's not averse to showing the downside of this character, that there are people who hate him. And I think, you know, we're living in, in a world now where we've, we've got people like Trump, Johnson, Orban and uh, Bolsonaro in charge in various countries. And I think Kane has got that message that although although he's, he's not a right-wing figure, so he, he sort of drifts through you know, different sort of levels of, of and areas of politics. And that's one of the great things about Kane is you just can't get a handle on it. But I think the message that comes through that resonates with a modern audience is that um, if, if you try and be a populist in terms of media or in terms of the political arena, 
there's always going to be, no matter how popular and how much of a, a, a voice of the people you think you're projecting, there's always going to be a big, big percentage of people out there who hate you. And that's why it's a film that lasts. Yeah, it, it, perennially, perennially uh, important, I guess. Yeah, we've got to give a shout out to, well, A, to the cast, who, who they, they, the credit sequence at the end is fascinating because they put a caption on screen that basically tells you most of the people in this film who have been absolutely amazing have never acted in a film before. You know, they're mm. all from the Mercury Theatre. They've all been doing radio for three years. My first experience as Citizen Kane, uh, what was, the, the thing that made me want to watch it, I didn't see it as a, as a, when I was growing up. I only saw it when I was an adult. And I was working at Blockbuster Video, and it was late 90s, so they must have done a re-release of Citizen Kane on VHS. And they were trailering it on the in-store Blockbuster Video that used to play like an hour-long video, and they had advertised all the latest um, movies that were coming up. And they, instead of doing a new trailer for Citizen Kane, they played the original 1941 trailer for Citizen Kane, which is... It's like clips from the film, as you'd expect, but it's also like slight outtakes where they smile at the camera and like go, oh, hi, you know, and wave at the camera and introduce themselves. And it's the voiceover is, is Orson Welles introducing the cast. So it's like, here's Dorothy Cummingor. You're going to hear a lot about her. Here's Joseph Cotton. He's a great actor. You're going to love him in this other game. It's, just, it's a wonderful, like, speaking directly to the audience. They, these guys are going to be great. This movie is going to be wonderful. You're going to love it. And again, like like we just said about Catherine Hepburn, that's that's an incredible sort of self belief. And again, not a boastful one. It's it, it's just they know how good they are, yeah. and, and they can't wait for the audience to find out. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, it is, and it's remarkably acted. It really, really is. Um, great cast, great edited, wonderfully edited. Yeah, it is. Which is uh, Rob Robert Wise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who would go on to have a little bit of an impact on cinema as well. Definitely, yeah, 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 yeah. So many careers start here, you know. For for me though, the the star of the film is Greg Toland, the the cinematographer. Yeah, absolutely extraordinary. Again, he's Wells is getting him to do stuff that's all been done before, but he he makes it his own, you know. And it's the combination of what he does that that makes it, you know. There's roving camera, there's use of long shot, there's there's very little use of close up. Interestingly, you know, which you remember more close ups from Citizen Kane than there actually are. And uh, but it's with his lighting and and with uh, particularly with sort of deep focus and depth of field, some absolutely extraordinary moments you almost think you're watching the film in 3d at, at times you know incredible job on the film and um one thing they did one technique they used was to put ceilings on the sets as well which again wasn't wasn't new it had been done uh i think by people like eric von stroheim in the past but it wasn't the done thing you know and uh and, and again this adds a sense of reality to to the movie and adds this sort of uh, very similitude to it that if you're in a newspaper office or you're in a bar or or you're you're in Kane's expansive uh, mansion, you know, it's a real place. It's got a ceiling, you know, and and uh, and they they go to great pains to to showing you that. Even something as simple as that helps to make this film what it is. So yes, yeah, so it's given us some iconic moments that have been parodied in cinema uh, ever since. Really, you know, you've made it. You know, you made it as a cultural icon when The Simpsons incorporated into their into their um, spoofery. I guess. Yeah, yeah. People that watch The Simpsons do this all the time. You know, they go back and revisit old movies and scenes that they're familiar with from the TV show. You know, they suddenly discover where they've come from. You know, and Citizen Kane will, would be, I think, ideal viewing for a Simpsons fan because I, I think they've they've done so many sort of riffs on it. Again, even even the character of Mr. Burns in The Simpsons has got his equivalent in in Kane. The the structure of the film's fascinating because it's all done with a reporter. Kane is dead at the start of the film, and the reporter's sort of travelling around trying to find out uh, more about his 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 life and trying to interview people that that he sort of worked with and that have sort of been uh, involved in his rise to power. And um, it's got this fascinating structure where you meet all of these really interesting characters and you sort of go into flashbacks and so on. And you were talking about how, how the film wasn't, wasn't a sort of huge success when it came out. 
I think it got a few Oscar nominations, but I think it only only I think it won one for screenplay. I think and, that's correct. And, that yeah. and you you can sort of watch Citizen Kane now and put yourself in the eyes of an audience in 1941, and where they were accepting of something like King Kong or Bringing Up Baby, which were innovative in their own way. I, I can I can see that an audience might have looked at Kane at the time and thought this has just gone a little bit too far. This is too much for me to take in. I don't I don't want to sort of say that audiences were less sophisticated, but I think the opposite is the case. But uh, I do think it's it's a, an incredibly sort of busy and again fast moving film, and um, you you've got to work to keep up with it. That's the thing, and I think yeah. that's probably why it's such a big critical favourite, simply because. It makes demands on its audience, and I think I think critics and filmmakers in particular love that. Yeah, and like we like we said said earlier on, it's just like there was no stars in this movie. It was it was people they hadn't you hadn't heard of. If you didn't know the Mercury Theatre, you didn't know the the National Furrow over the War of the Worlds thing a couple of years previously. These were just a bunch of unknown actors. There was no Cary Grant. There was no James Stewart. There was no Catherine Hepburn. There was no uh, star a lister. That yo, I like their movies. I'm going to go and see this one as well. You know, uh, there yeah. was nothing for that. So you were, you know, you were taking a chance. Sure, sure. And RKO took a chance. You know, mm. and, and and Wells. The, the whole thing with Wells was that you know we don't need stars. You're looking at the stars of the future, sure. and that's mm. that's where this whole credit and trailer thing comes in. You know, mm. it's we're introducing you to the next generation, and it didn't quite pan out like that. You know, and I think the reason for that is that. You know the the team that Wells had built up around them in the Mercury Theatre were were all, they were all great, but they they were all fantastic character actors. So although a lot of them went on to great uh, movie and TV careers, we weren't finding the new Jimmy Stewart here. You know, no. Even even no. in the case of Wells, he was perhaps the the the, the face of the movie that emerged in in that conventional movie star sense. As, yeah. as as its biggest success, but uh, um, so many people like Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead and so on went on to to incredible careers, but largely as sort of character players, pretty much doing what they were doing in Kane. I think I think it's it's one of the unfortunate things that Kane's revival at the hands of the French critics of the Cahiers de Cinema didn't come until like like 1956, yeah, when RKO was pretty much. Like dead at well, that they, point. they were just about dying. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you didn't, they didn't get the chance to really say, well, actually, our legacy is this, yeah. and we can help use that legacy to help continue and build and, and and grow again, as other studios did do with with their movies. You know, like Universal with the Frankenstein, and and the you know, they, they re-released those in the fifties to massive success. You know. Um, so yeah. So it's, so it's slightly unfortunate, really, that uh, we didn't quite pan out for RKO. In the long run, or the short run. <laughs> or, <laughs> so this movie was like eight hundred thousand dollars to make. So a yeah. fairly big budget movie at the time. We're going to move away from um, the eight hundred thousand dollar movie budgets, not to four hundred thousand dollars, Daryl. We're going to drop even further lower than that. We're going to drop down to the two hundred thousand dollar movie budgets <laughs> for our next RKO film. Um, we're going to move. To the outskirts of poverty row filmmaking, and we're going to go to the Val Luton unit at RKO and Cat People, 1942. Yeah, fabulous. Uh, I mean, among my my favourites, these and the, the the Luton unit was was set up to make B horror movies, and they all they had the the idea of this was they had pre-tested titles. So some somebody in the studio said, "Hey, wouldn't it be great if we made we, we've seen Universal and all these guys having hits with their Dracula and Frankenstein? Why don't we do a movie called Cat People?" And if if you watch the the Kirk Douglas movie, The Bad and the Beautiful from the fifties. He sort of almost plays Val Luton in that film. And uh, you can get a real flavour of what Luton's time at RKO was like from watching uh, The Bad and the Beautiful. It's a very thinly veiled um, sort of version of Luton and various other producers and their, their sort of struggles in Hollywood with Kirk Douglas um, supreme in the film. But the, the real Luton was saddled in 1942 with, oh, can can you make us some horror movies to go out on support with our A features, you know? And 
he said yes and they said well here the first one's called cat people and he sort of rolled his eyes and <laughs> what have i got myself into and then went away and with his team with the writer de whitbadeen director jacques tourneur editor robert wise again they crafted this movie and then this subsequent series of nine films which took these sort of catch-penny titles, these, these terrible sort of it'll-look-good-on-the-horror-poster titles, and they made something so lyrical and poetic out of them, and they reinvented the horror film. And the first thing they did was they ditched the mad scientist, they ditched the werewolf, they ditched the castle. Crucially, they ditched the period setting. They set their film in 1942, they set it in the city. They had characters wearing contemporary clothes, doing jobs, going to see the psychiatrist, you know, all the stuff that modern um, city dwellers in America would do. And they pitched in the middle of that a conventional horror movie plot about shapeshifters. But again, they're clever enough, and this could also come down to the low budget. They didn't have enough money to do what Universal were doing and turn Lon Chaney Jr. into the Wolfman. So they sort of leave the audience guessing, does our character turn into a cat or not? Does she become a, a Black Panther or doesn't she? And it reinvented horror. And yeah. it not only did it create psychological horror, but it actually combined that with supernatural horror from the get-go. It basically says we've got this and we've got to make the best out of this. And the beautifulness of the way it's shot, um, the moody settings, the lighting is absolutely key in this film. The lighting think, in know, particular. Brings, bring, brings in the film noir, which you were talking about, uh, how, how screwball comedy has got this crossover with noir. I think the Val Luton movie showed that the horror film as such didn't really have a crossover with noir, but I think the Val Luton movie showed that this new style of modern horror was arising at precisely the same time that films like The Maltese Falcon were starting to come out. So these two new genres of movie, film noir and this new type of horror, were, were being born at the same time, and they really fed into each other. Yeah, I mean, obviously the director of, of Cat People would go on to make one of the best film noirs of all times, Build Your Gallows High, or Out of the Past, if you want to go with a boring American title. Yeah, Jacques Bernier did an amazing, uh, had a handful of films in his career which arguably the best in the genre. You know, yeah, you talk yeah. cat people, best psychological horror, best supernatural horror, Night of the Demon, absolute masterpiece, Bill My Gallows High, masterpiece of film noir. And he knew how to light a set. He knew oh, yeah, how yeah. to light a set. Brilliantly, brilliantly done. But the cat, but cat people, let's move back to cat people. Massively influential. And, and brought horror into the modern day in a way that I, th I think would, would have always happened at some point. But if you look back at cinema history, had Cat People not happened, would, would Rosemary's Baby, 25 years later, have been the film, the film that did that? Because people, I think, would have just carried on. In fact, a lot of people did just carry on making period vampire and Frankenstein movies. And... Um, uh, Luton really did pave the way there to say, look, horror, horror films don't have to be about the Baron in the castle. They can be about the guy at the end of the bar that you're, you're drinking in or at the next table at the restaurant that you're eating in, you know. And, and this is what his films did, and Cat People, primary among them, you know, the, the first one. And it's the first of this series of nine, and I, I think it remained the best of them. And it really, it really did set... The, the, the mode for what these films were going to be. Luton then did sort of go back into and do and do period horror during the run, but um, I think that was just his means of uh, sort of saying, well, yeah, we've proved that we can reinvent the horror film. Let's now try and prove that we can we can sort of do the tradi traditional horror film and bring something new to, to to that part as well. You know, yeah, constantly innovative, and I think it really does show right from this very first movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's credited as, as like inventing the jump scare. 
where 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 would Hollywood cinema where would horror cinema be without the jump scare now? Well, they, the the term that's actually used, of course, um, sure. they everyone everyone's using the term jump scare these days. But uh, film historians for years have mm. called that concept of something leaping out of the dark and surprising you out of nowhere. They 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 called it the bus, and the reason they call it the bus is because of a scene in Cat People involving a bus. Yeah, yeah. I've heard to it referred to as Luton, the Luton bus before. The Luton bus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that's a remarkable sequence. And, you know, oh, it's brilliant. Someone brilliant. stalking somebody in the dark. Yeah, and then you have the jump jump scare of the, of, of, of the bus turning up. Yeah, in fact, in fact, if if you watch the uh, the two thousand movie uh, Final Destination, the very first of the Final Destination films, not only does Kirsten Cloak play a character called Valerie Luton, so mm-hmm. it tells you what the writers are doing there. You know, they actually put a, a literal bus scene in their movie as a, a coach comes out of nowhere at, at one absolutely shocking point in the film. So yeah, here we are, sort of sixty years on, or getting on for sixty years on from from the Luton film in the year two thousand, and you've got Hollywood horror filmmakers still paying homage to to Val Luton. But yeah, he he sort of created this idea of, or, or you know, you can credit the editors. You can say Robert Wise and the editing team had a hand in this, and and the sound design people. It's all a mixture of their talents, you know, just for this one brilliant moment. If we say no more about that and let you watch the movie, I I guarantee that you'll you'll jump. It's so well timed. The the other sequence that is well regarded in this movie is the pool sequence. Brilliant. Um, yeah. With uh, the, one of the characters in in the pool being uh, 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 it's dark and lighting again playing a part. Is and there something effects. in the sh- yeah, and sound yeah. effects? Is there something in the shadows about together? Basically, yeah. We're, we're sort of told the information we've been given throughout the film tells us that there's going to be like a, a black panther or a black leopard roaming around the pool. And you'll you'll be convinced that you've seen one. Mm. You will be convinced that there's one there. <laughs> there. And in reality, there isn't. But in the film's reality, it's left up to us to imagine, to decide. Did we see something? Didn't we? Did the character in the pool see something? Oh, it's so brilliant, so well lit. And again, you know, could could have could have been a scene out of a film noir. Another iconic thing that we need to talk about as well is the RKO logo. Oh yeah, yeah. With the, the radio tower on the earth, and yes, you know, again, another iconic piece of cinema. And again, one one I think that's recognisable to people who may never have even seen an RKO film. Everybody seems to know the lightning flashes and the RKO tower. Obviously, whilst these were being made at a much lower budget than the top tier A-list movies, it probably did start to signify the end of RKO that they were producing a lot more B movies than, than the other big five studios. They were relying on that a bit more than than their big A-list productions, and then by the early fifties, they were in trouble. And by this point, you've got Howard Hughes was involved in the studio, which is never a good sign, you know. Yes, and, no, uh, yeah. Another iconic piece of history of cinema. How would you? And again, again, another figure who sort of impacts a little bit on Citizen Kane. You know, you can see elements of the Hughes persona in there mm. too. So interesting that he ended up buying the studio. You know. Well, that's our five films that we've gone through. Is there any other that you want to mention, Daryl, just to give people a bit more of a broader... I'm, I'm, ju- I'm just going to throw a few quick titles in and say to people if you can find these do. Armoured Car Robbery, directed by Richard Fleischer, 1951. Absolutely brilliant plotting of a crime drama. You're so tense and so exciting. It's 65 minutes long. It gets in and out. It's superb. There's a film called Bunko Squad from 1950, which I love. It's about an LA police department who are set up to raid fake seances. Amazing. And it's fantastic. What what an idea. Whether this was really happening, I don't know. But yeah, this branch of the LAPD that go after mediums and charlatans, you know, brilliant movie. And then the third one I'll mention is 
again, RKO, very innovative and always prepared to take a chance on people. And they took a chance on one of Hollywood's best remembered female directors, Ida Lupino. And among the films she directed in the early 50s, I recommend a great one called The Hitchhiker. So there's, there's three from me. Oh, The Hitchhiker is great. We screened that quite a couple of years ago as part of the BFI thriller season that was uh, playing out across the country. And uh, yeah, a, a brilliant film, brilliant film. For me, I'm going to book out three of the more heavier hitters. I mean, RKO, whilst doing their own things, also had a, a distribution deal in place with Walt Disney. So they were the studio that put out Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. They put out Bambi. They put out Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse cartoons. They released so many of those, like like, like hundreds of, of Disney cartoons. In yeah, the again, it's you know another great innovation from the studio. Why why compete with Disney when when you can yeah. get in on the action? Yeah, absolutely. And they and they were there co-producing Donald Duck, <laughs> Mickey Mouse. <laughs> you know, you talk about biggest stars in Hollywood. There you go. You have got Goofy. You've got Pluto. You you got them all. You know, I, I restricted myself from watching westerns for so many years. So I'm, I'm going to delve into some of the John Wayne westerns. She, she wore a yellow ribbon, is RKO. Yeah. I'm going to check that one out this week, I think, as well. And obviously, the one we've mentioned already, Dojo Gallows High, uh, just a masterpiece of film noir, Robert Mitchum in priceless form. That's uh, well worth checking out as well. Cool. Very good. Thank you very much, Daryl, for this little jump through RKO. And I'm sure we'll be back fairly soon for another podcast. I want to thank Quad and BFI for helping support these podcasts. They wouldn't be possible without their kind support. And we should be seeing you hopefully in a couple of weeks' time for our next podcast. Yeah, thanks to everyone for listening. And all of these films that we've talked about, or the, the main five that we've talked about, are currently available on BBC Player. So, uh, Check out your smart TVs and you've got no excuse. And they're all available for about a year as well. It's not like you go watch them this week. They're, they're on for the next year. So you can see Citizen Kane, you can see King Kong, you can see all the films that we've talked about today and more. I mean, the Cat People sequels on there as well. I Walk With The Zombies on there. If you want to check out more of the Val Lute and stuff, it's well worth spending uh, a weekend and a week <laughs> checking out some of the highlights there. Cool. Thank you very much, Daryl. Take care, everyone, and we will see you soon.